We'll go ahead and dismiss our children at this time uh, to go to Children's Church. You know, it is an uh, exciting time that we gather on Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, we gather to celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus. As we talk about the triumphal entry, as we talk about Palm Sunday on this Sunday, uh, we're reminded, and and, and we're going to get into the text, and we're going to get into the story in just a few minutes, uh, but Jesus enters in on Palm Sunday and gets one reaction and one accolade and one, uh, one response by, by a bunch of various of different people, by the crowd, by the Pharisees, by the disciples. And then just a few days later, just a few days later, he finds himself standing before Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate being tried as a criminal, being tried as a blasphemer. And so this, this day on Palm Sunday marks a, a significant time in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so it is, uh, it is prudent that we take a good long look at this period, this Sunday, Palm Sunday. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open it to the book of John, not Matthew, John chapter 12. I know most of your Bibles go ahead and flop open to the book of Matthew, but but just flip a few pages over. We're going to be in the book of John chapter 12 this morning. John chapter 12. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 23. John chapter 12 verses 12 through 23. On the next day, a great multitude who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and begun to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And these things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written of him, that they had done these things to him. So the multitudes who were with him, when he called out Lazarus from the tomb and had raised him from the dead, they were being bearing witness of him. For this cause also the multitudes went to meet him, because they had heard that he had performed this sign. And the Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that they are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were certain Greeks among those who were going to worship at him, going worship at the feast. And these therefore came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came, and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered and said to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Let's pray. God, as we read your text, as we read the Word of God this morning, may you speak to our hearts. May we hear your Holy Spirit speaking through your Word. May we not hear what this preacher has to say. Or may you speak 
through broken vessels this morning. God, we ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would convict us of sin, would bring us to the place of repentance, and would come to the place of faith. We thank you for the Word of God, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Jesus enters Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday. If we look at the Gospel of John, and we're going to look very, very specifically at the text, we look at the Gospel, we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all chronicle, they all give us a a testimony of this triumphal entry, of Jesus entering Jerusalem a week before He will raise from the dead, a week before He will, on Resurrection Sunday, stand victorious over sin, death, and the grave, and He enters, ironically enough, as a triumphant king. The same way that He will enter Jerusalem a week from Sunday as a triumphant king, but vastly different. And so, I want us to remember, as we look at this triumphal entry, that this is not the first time that Jesus has been called the King of Israel. Go with me, if you will, and let's look at another example. Let's look at another time, early, early, early in the ministry of Jesus, where he is referred to as the King of Israel. John chapter 1, verse 9. I'm sorry. John chapter 1, verse 49. Jesus is spoken of by Nathanael, one of his disciples. Nathanael answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. So at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, there were those who recognized and who called him the king. And so this this entrance into Jerusalem is is a fulfillment of that which was already foretold, that which was already known by many. Also want us to remember that there were times in Jesus' ministry where, where people, where the multitudes tried to force him into a political position as king. Go with me, if you will, to the book of John chapter 6. After Jesus had fed the thousands, look at John chapter 6, verse 15. Jesus had just fed 5,000 men, probably somewhere around fifteen to 20,000 people altogether. And in John chapter 6, verse 15, it says, Jesus therefore perceiving that they were intended to come, they being the multitudes, were intending to come and take him by force. Why? To kill him? To crucify him? No. Look at what it says. To make him king, he withdrew again from them. He went away by himself. So there were those, there were those disciples, there were those uh, whom God, whom the Holy Spirit had revealed that this is the Son of David, this is the King. John had said in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There were those who understood, even if they veiled understanding, there were those who understood the purpose and the role of Christ long before He would ever assume or ever realize His role, that, that He was the King. There were also those, the multitudes, while they didn't understand what they were doing, they didn't understand the gravity of of their actions, they didn't understand the the reality of of their assertions, that the multitudes, after seeing Jesus take five loaves of bread and two fish and feed thousands of people, they, they sought to seize Him and say, you must be our king, you must be our ruler, you must be our leader. Jesus went away because He knew His hour had not yet come. I want us to remember that Jesus refused to take the throne because he understood from the very beginning, he understood the nature of his kingdom and he understood his purpose. 
Remember, Jesus didn't come onto the scene in Bethlehem as a baby. Jesus is the eternal God. The scripture tells us that before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. Jesus was there at creation. In fact, he was the means of creation. Jesus was there in the Garden of of Eden whenever Adam and Eve were walking in the cool of the evening there was Jesus in the garden with them Jesus was in the fiery furnace with Shadrach Meshach and Abednego Jesus was with Joshua as the commander of the Lord's army there is countless times throughout the Old Testament where we see the pre-incarnation of Jesus reminding us that Jesus is the eternal God that he is before all time and will be for all time and so we must understand that from the very beginning Jesus understood the nature of his kingdom And Jesus understood his purpose on this earth. As he stood before Pilate and he asked, Pilate asked him, he said, he said, are you a king? And Jesus said, yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my disciples would take up arms against you. He understood the nature of his kingdom. He understood that the nature of his kingdom was not going to be, uh, was not going to be taken by force. He understood the nature of his kingdom was a spiritual kingdom. And he understood his purpose on this earth was not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many and so as we understand as we look at this triumphal entry i don't want us to to lose sight of the reality that jesus understood from the very beginning what his role was and the nature of his kingdom all right let's look at the details of this triumphal entry Let's look at the details of this triumphal entry. Now, this is the week leading up to Passover. Passover is going to begin, depending upon which calendar you look at, either sundown on Thursday or sundown on Friday, uh, depending upon which scholar you, you read and which, which, uh, which uh, calendar you hold to. Passover is going to begin either sundown on Thursday or sundown on Friday. And so here we have, here we have the week leading up to Passover. All of the pilgrims, all of the, the Jews from all around the Asia, from all around Asia Minor, from all around the, the Roman kingdom, the Roman Empire, are traveling to Jerusalem for Passover week. Now, for us, this is this is foreign to us. Because if it's raining outside, we don't even travel to church. But these are people that, that are going to stop at nothing to come to Jerusalem for this Passover, for this this feast, for this festival. This is the most important time in in the life of faith of the Jewish person. And we must remember that that in Jerusalem exists the temple. And that is the place for the Jewish people where the presence of God exists. And so, yes, they can worship in their synagogue, and yes, they can... They, they can sing praises to God and hear the word of God taught, but the presence of God is not there. And so for the Jewish people, in order for them to, to truly worship and for them to experience the blessing and the grace of God, they've got to go to Jerusalem. If, and if they're going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to go during Passover. Josephus, a first century historian, estimates that during the week of Passover, during the life of Jesus, that there would be approximately... Two to two and a half million Jews in and around Jerusalem. That's a lot of folks. In an ancient world where there are no hotels, there are no motels, 
There are no RV parks. 200 or uh, two and a half million people. And there are many scholars that say, well, well, there's no way that, that they could have laid palms down at the feet of Jesus because palms don't grow in Jerusalem. No, but when they traveled to Jerusalem, they knew that they were going to be building temporary shelters. And so it's very likely that they would have brought palms to thatch the roofs of their temporary shelters. Two and a half million people gathering in Jerusalem for the week of Passover. Palms were traditionally used to welcome a victorious hero or a victorious king. In fact, very, in, in very recent history for the Jewish people in the first Christian century, they would have seen a triumphal entry into Jerusalem by a guy by the name of Judas Maccabees. There's a reason that the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. And it's not just so they can give presents for eight days. The Jews celebrate Hanukkah, the festival of lights, commemorating the Maccabean revolt. What this was, and, and, and this is important for us to understand this, because this helps shape the mindset and the expectancy of the Jewish people in the days of Jesus. Under Antiochus, uh, the, the Roman emperor, there was no worship, uh, there was no Jewish, there was no monotheistic worship. The only worship that was allowed in the Roman Empire was the worship of the Roman gods. And a guy by the name of Judas Maccabees, a guy by the name of Judas Maccabees, led a revolt, led a revolt, about 100, 150 years prior to Jesus, led a revolt that overthrew the Roman government in Jerusalem and reestablished the worship of God in Jerusalem. And then during that revolt, Antiochus dies, and a new emperor comes in and allows there to be relatively freedom of worship in Jerusalem. So, understand this. The Jews were not allowed to worship God in Jerusalem for hundreds of years. A guy by the name of Judas Maccabees comes in, overthrows the Roman government, leads this revolt, and now the Jews are able to worship God in the temple once again. Judas Maccabees, there were many people who believed Judas to be the Messiah. And when he entered into Jerusalem, history tells us that as he entered into Jerusalem, the crowds threw down palm branches in front of him and said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why? Because for the very first time in hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jews had a hero who had delivered them from bondage and reestablished worship. Judas, in a very real practical sense, was a Messiah for them. He was one who was appointed by God to deliver them from bondage and restore worship. That's in the recent history. It's in the recent memory of many of the worshipers, many of the pilgrims that are there. Their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents had told them stories of the Messiah. And as he came in, the one whom God appointed to deliver Israel from Rome. As he came in, they threw palm branches down. Now the scripture tells us that many of the multitudes that were there were there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So understand this. They watched Jesus call Lazarus out of the tomb and then that same guy marches into Jerusalem a few days later. So what do they do? They throw palm branches down. 
They say Judas Maccabees may have been a Messiah, but this is the Messiah. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were celebrating a hero's welcome. Now, I want us to look at the reaction of the Pharisees. When we leave here today, I pray that we will leave with a true faith in Christ. As we'll look at the reaction of different, the different bystanders there, we'll see that many of them reacted to Jesus. We'll see the Pharisees' reaction. We'll look at the reaction of the crowd. We'll look at the reaction of the disciples. We'll even look at Jesus' reaction. And I pray that as we leave today, that we will react to a triumphant king in faith. Well, let's look first at the reaction of the Pharisees. My wife and I have three beautiful children. And whenever we had our first child, we were enamored with this kid. We would, we would turn off the TV and just watch him. We'd watch him as he was learning to crawl. We would, at four months old, we would, we would sit with, with him in between our legs and we would just, just hold him up and he'd fall over. And we'd pick him up and hold him up and he'd fall over. And, and for hours, we would, we would play with him and we, would, we were enamored with him. We would argue over, over whose turn it was to feed him and bathe him and, and we were just enamored with this child. And then a few years later, <coughs> my wife finds out that she's expecting our second child. And we begin as much as humanly possible to explain to our oldest that he's going to be a big brother, that mom and dad are going to have another baby, and that he's going to be a big brother, and we do everything we can to try and explain to him that things are going to change. That all of a sudden, you know, there's going to be mom and dad are going to have to, you know, the baby's going to need mom and dad to feed it, and the baby's going to need mom and dad to change it. And at, at two years old, he, he understands as much as a two-year-old can understand. And then the day comes. The day comes when, when we go to the hospital and we bring home a baby girl. And we, we didn't find out what we were going to have, so it was a surprise to everyone. And Natalie had this this grand vision that, that, that we're going to tell Daniel, who's two and a half years old, what it is. And Daniel's going to run into the waiting room and tell all of our friends and family, either it's a boy or it's a girl, and there would be this eruption of, of joy and, and exuberance and laughter and, and crying and, and, and all of the, the, the emotion. And so... The doctors and nurses wheel Natalie out of the delivery room and we're heading to the you know, little family room where you, where you greet the family. And Daniel comes running down the hall with either my mom or Natalie's mom, I don't even remember. And, and Daniel just loses his mind. He starts crying and he's now, now mind you, he's two years old. He's two. Now, we've tried as hard as we can to explain it to him, but, but he is mad and he is angry and he keeps looking at Natalie saying, get out of that bed. What are you doing laying there? Get out of that bed. And he, was, he, he responded with, with anger and with antagonism because 
He didn't understand. He was two. He didn't understand. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, the Pharisees don't understand. The disciples don't understand. The crowd, the multitude, they don't understand. I want us to look at their reactions. Look at the reaction of the Pharisees. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. The Pharisees, now they had already conspired in John chapter 11. They had already conspired to kill Jesus. After they raise, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, they get together and they say, okay, this is enough of this guy. He's already cleansed the temple one time at the beginning of the Gospel of John. He's already fed thousands. He's walked on waters. He's calmed the storm. He's cleansed the the leper. He's done all these signs. There There is a multitude of people following this guy. In order for us to maintain the status quo, in order for us to maintain our authority, this guy's got to go. Look at John chapter 12, verse 19. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. There is an intense antagonism by the Pharisees. They are, they're done with Jesus. Why? Was it because of his benevolence? Was it because of his kindness? Was it because of his his teachings? No. The Pharisees reacted with antagonism because Jesus challenged everything that they knew. Because Jesus would change the status quo. Because they could no longer operate as they were operating. He challenged the law. He challenged their understanding of the law. He challenged their teaching of the law. He challenged their authority with the people. He challenged who they were. He challenged the status quo. And there are many people in our lives, there may be even, we may even fall into this category. We are antagonistic towards Christ, maybe not outwardly, but inwardly because Jesus changes our status quo. Because he forces us, he forces us to react with grace instead of the law. Because it is our natural default to react in judgment to react in condemnation to those around us, and we are antagonistic to the message of the gospel because Jesus challenges our status quo. It's easy to be judgmental and to respond to the addict in condemnation, to respond to the homosexual in condemnation, to respond to the criminal, to respond to the drunkard, to respond to whomever. In condemnation, but Jesus says that we should be instruments of grace. And we don't like that. That flows against and that, that, that goes contrary to everything that, 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 that we know. And so there may be many of us that react to Jesus, just as the Pharisees, with antagonism. I want us to look to the re- reaction of the disciples. <coughs> look at John chapter 12. Verse 16, and these things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified and when they remembered these things that were written of him, then they, that they had done these things to him. So the scripture tells us at first the disciples did not understand. That the disciples were confused. 
The disciples were, were slow to understand. Now, I want, us to, I want us to be careful here not to minimize the faith of the disciples. The Scripture doesn't say that they didn't understand at all. The Scripture says that they didn't understand right away. That they were, they were slow to understand. That they were, they were foggy in their understanding. These are going to be the fathers of the early church. These men are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and be the authors of the New Testament. These men are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and be those who are proclaiming there at Pentecost when thousands upon thousands are saved. These men are going to be those who give their life for what they would one day fully understand. Let us not minimize their faith, but let us also understand that at this moment, at this point in history, in John chapter 12, that they don't fully understand everything. Remember, in just a few verses later, John is going to come up to Jesus and say, hey, whenever you get to your kingdom, let me sit on your right hand and let my brother sit on your left hand. This is going to be the same group of people Peter's going to look at Jesus and say, when he's washing his feet, say, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. And he's going to want him to give him a bath. And then he's going to say, I'll never betray you. And then just a few hours later, betray. These are going to be the same men who after being filled with the Holy Spirit will be the patriarchs of the church. But at this point, they don't quite understand They are slow to understand. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't understand exactly what God's up to. And many of us, I believe, are like the disciples. We believe as much as we can possibly believe, but we don't really know what God is up to. Maybe we've been diagnosed with cancer. Maybe we're going through hardship. Maybe we're going through difficulty. Maybe, maybe we have, maybe life has kicked you in the teeth and you say, God, I, I know that I can trust you, but right now it sure doesn't look like it. Maybe that's where we are. Maybe we're like the disciples. We said, okay, Jesus, I saw you walking on water. I saw you calming the storm. I know you're the son of God, but we don't fully understand what that means just yet. Maybe there's, Some of us out there who react to Jesus like the disciples. We know we can trust him. We just don't know what that looks like right now. Slow to understand. And then I want us to look at the reaction of the crowd. The reaction of the crowd is interesting. The reaction of the crowd, they shouted out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The translation for Hosanna is actually, Hosanna is actually Aramaic. It comes from a a Hebrew derivative, which literally means salvation now. Save us now. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is marching into Jerusalem. He's hearing them say, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They believed Jesus to be their Messiah. However, they wanted their Messiah on their terms and on their conditions. 
Go with me, if you will, to the book of Psalms, chapter 118. This is the passage of Scripture. <coughs> this is the passage of Scripture that they are referencing. Psalm chapter 118 is a messianic psalm. Verses 25 and 26 is the specific text that they are referencing. Psalm chapter 118, verses 25 and 26. Bo. Uh, actually quoted this psalm, uh, a portion of this psalm this morning. Psalm chapter 118, verse 25 and 26. It says, O Lord, do save. We beseech you. We beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. They are quoting this psalm, 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes as the anointed one, as the Messiah from God. They're quoting this passage in conjunction with Zechariah chapter 9. With Zechariah chapter 9. There, it, is, it, it is kind of a, a consolidation of the two chapters. Psalm 118 verse 25 and 26 and then Zechariah chapter 9. They want Jesus to be their Messiah However, they want Jesus on their terms. Save us now. Be the Messiah. Be our king like Judas Maccabees. Be our king who delivers us from political bondage, who delivers us from from the, the reign and the tyranny of Rome. Deliver us. Be our savior now. Drive out these Roman officials. Rule over us as our political king. Why? Because that's the mindset, that is the understanding of the Jewish Messiah in the first Christian century. I believe that many of us respond and react to Jesus just like the crowd. Be my savior. Be my king. Be my Messiah. On my terms. I want you to, to impact my life like this, like this, like this, like this. Jesus, be my God, be my King, be my Savior. Take care of my finances, take care of my family, take care of my fill in the blank. We want Jesus on our terms. Let us look at Jesus' reaction. Now, I want to remind you, all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has said over and over and over again, my hour has not yet come. Go to John chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus is at the wedding feast at Cana, and his mom says, hey Jesus, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, What do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Look at John chapter 2 verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Jesus said, it is not time for me to reveal the purpose that God has given me. Remember I said at the very beginning that Jesus was well aware of who he was and what his purpose was? John chapter 2 verse 4. Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. John chapter 7 verse 30. John chapter 7, verse 30. Again, we see Jesus at the feast, teaching the Feast of Tabernacles, and Jesus is teaching. They were seeking, therefore, to seize him. Verse 30. 
And no man laid hands on him. Why not? Because he was really fast? No. Because his hour had not yet come. Remember who is sovereign? God is. They sought him so that they could... He was, he was contradicting their status quo. He was challenging their teaching. And so they sought to seize him. And he, they weren't able to because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8 verse 20. John chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus, after he has been confronted with the adulterous woman, he spoke these words, John chapter 8, verse 20, he spoke these words in the treasury, and as he taught in the temple, and no one was able to seize him, why not? Because his hour had not yet come. Time and time again in the message and the ministry of Jesus, he tells his disciples, don't tell anybody what you've seen and what you've heard. My hour's not yet come. We see this theme over and over again. Yet, here in John chapter 12, he enters into Jerusalem. And what does he say? Look at the text. Verse 23. John chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees don't understand. The crowd wants Jesus on their terms. The Pharisees want to kill Jesus. Jesus has all of these things that are going on. In verse 23, Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now Jesus understood what that meant. Jesus understood the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in order for the Son of Man to be glorified, He must be exalted. He must be lifted high upon the cross. That He must suffer the fate of of he must suffer the consequences of sin. He must endure the wrath of God. He must be separated spiritually from his heavenly Father for the first time in all of eternity. He must bear the weight of sin. Jesus understood what it meant, my hour has now come, and yet he responds in complete submission and faith. He says, God, whatever it means, if it means that I suffer and die, if it means that I endure the wrath of God, if it means that I, I bear the weight of the sin of the world, my hour has now come. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says this, Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider Him. Consider Him, that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus knew exactly what He was doing. And He responded with, Yes, Lord. I will humbly submit myself to Your will, no matter what. So the question I have for us this morning, how will you react to Jesus? Will you react with the Pharisees and say, I'll take this Jesus so long as my status quo isn't challenged. So long as nothing has to change, I'll submit to Jesus. Will you submit to Jesus and react to Him as the disciples with a veiled understanding? And so, okay, Jesus, I'll trust you. But I don't know what's going on. I don't fully understand. 
Will you respond like the crowd? We want salvation on our terms. We want Jesus on our terms. Or will we respond with Jesus? I will submit to you no matter what. When God revealed himself to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, it says, The year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. There were seraphim. We know the story. And the Lord asked a question. Whom shall I send? Isaiah responded, Here am I, send me. Complete faith. Will you respond to Jesus as He is? Complete faith. Here am I, send me. Let's pray. God, we know that You are working in the hearts and lives of Your people. We know that as Jesus entered Jerusalem, He entered as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We know that as He rose from the grave, He rose from the grave as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We know that as He rules today, that He rules as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. But we thank You that Jesus is King. This morning, God has revealed to you that Jesus is King. How will you respond to Him? How will you react to Jesus? Will you act, react in veiled understanding like the disciples? Will you react with antagonism because Jesus is challenging your status quo? Will you react with the crowd you want Jesus on your terms? Or you react like Jesus, fully trusting in God, no matter what the outcome. As we sing the song of invitation, maybe you need to come down to this altar and confess sin that, that you've been wanting Jesus on your terms and wanting Christ on your terms. Maybe you've opposed Jesus because He's challenged your understanding. Maybe you've responded like James and John, not fully understanding what God was doing, wanting your way. God's called you just to trust. Proverbs 3 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understandings, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. God, this morning, as you invite us to your altar, may you do works on our heart. Maybe God has called you this morning to become a part what he's doing right here at Redeemer whatever it is that the Lord is speaking to your heart may today be the day of decision thank you for Christ we pray your Holy Spirit would move in this place this morning in Jesus name